This is the IBM Cloud Podcast with Dan Bettinger, covering capabilities, methods, and discoveries to help you cloud better. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the IBM Cloud Podcast. This is Dan, and today we've got a really special episode that centers around databases. Joining me today is Josh Mintz from IBM and Ben Anderson from Enterprise DB. Guys, how are you doing? Good. Thanks, Dan. Doing all right. Wonderful. So the audience can understand who's who. Josh, would you be able to explain what you do at IBM? Hey, folks. My name is Josh Mintz. I am a product manager for cloud database services at IBM Cloud. So I work on a lot of different products, but my mission is to make data as easy to use as possible for our clients in cloud environments. Great. And how about you, Ben? Hey, folks. My name is Ben. I'm the CTO for the Cloud Group at a company called EDB. Um, EDB is a long-standing Postgres company. We have a, our own variant of Postgres. We have, employ a lot of Postgres committers. We like to brand ourselves as the Postgres company, basically, at this point. I work primarily on cloud-focused efforts at EDB, but spend a lot of time kind of bouncing all over the technology platform of the company. Again, thanks for making time. I've got to be honest. The only thing I have in common with databases is that my initials are the same as database. I mean, that being said, I think it's time for a pop quiz, okay? Um, are there more databases, file systems, or crypto tokens? I, say that, I kind of say that facetiously because, in short, there's so many database choices. Every time I turn around, I got a graph database, I got Columnar, I got this, I got that. What's the deal? Why are there so many databases? And where are these things going? There's a bunch of different ways you can slice it. One, you might say sort of tongue-in-cheek that there's a lot of different databases because there's a lot of different investors and a lot of different programmers willing to take money to build a company to make a database because databases are cool and databases are fun to work on and so on and so forth. I think that only goes so far, right? Uh, practically speaking, the different sorts of databases that you encounter in the world tend to represent different trade-offs in how you might engineer a database. So for example, Postgres is a fantastic system for doing a lot of different things. It's really kind of a Swiss army knife. And at the end of the day, it's going to keep your data safe, right? It's 100% focused on data safety, data integrity, these sorts of things. So if you need a system of record, you need to store things that are absolutely of essential um, to your business, Something like Postgres or Postgres itself is really fantastic. And it's got a lot of general purpose query capabilities that you can use to, to do a lot of different things with your data. But then if you start to run into problems where maybe you, you have some data set that is less, um, less essential that it's persistent, for example, it's okay if you lose some of this data, but what you really need is high performance access to it. Um, whether on a read side or the write side. Something like a Redis can be really powerful there, right? Where you've got a database that's really just optimized for in-memory optimizations and really simple operations against that data. Um, you might marry a Redis install to a Postgres system of record to serve some particular part of your application that doesn't need to be persistent in the same way as your core system of record data that you have in Postgres. So you end up looking at a situation where you have primary data stores, where that's something like Postgres, maybe MongoDB, that are more general purpose, more focused on um, data integrity and generality, and then special purpose systems sitting on the side for things like in-memory high-performance operations or scalability, horizontal scalability. So you can put a petabyte of data in the system like Cassandra. Uh, that kind of starts to look at 
we get more special purpose database systems for when you really understand your workload and really understand the types of queries that you need to run on that data up front. Josh, does that make sense? Do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think you described it well, Ben. My, my general words of advice for listeners is that if you're looking for a database, start with the primary category first for all of your workloads. These general purpose workhorses and very popular ones just in the, the sort of open source cloud native world would be you know, PostgreSQL or MongoDB. It's also technologies like Oracle, SQL Server, DB2. These are, are ubiquitous commercial databases that have been around a very long time or fairly bulletproof. So um, they've been around a long time for a reason. They're quite good, they're quite performant. Start with the primary data stores as your first point of entry and then branch out to the auxiliary data stores, the specialized systems that Ben talked about, the Redis's, the Elasticsearch's, the Cassandra's of the world, uh, only as your application needs it. It's really important to keep in mind that Postgres can probably do what you want. And your application is probably not going to exceed what Postgres can support from a scale perspective anytime soon. Your engineering time is much better spent making your customers happy than it is using some sort of flavor of the month database um, and esoteric functionality in that rather than uh, just sticking your data in Postgres and driving it as far as you can. I feel enlightened. Thank you. That, that, that means a lot to me. What I see happening in the industry is there's the move now to have databases in the cloud. That's known as database as a service. Can you expound upon that a little bit, Josh? Like, what's the benefit? Why do it? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to clarify that for you. So databases as a service, also known as our favorite acronym over here, DBAS, is basically a cloud computing service that lets end users access and use a database system in a public cloud without purchasing and setting up their own hardware, installing database software, or managing the database. So effectively, if we have a hierarchy of responsibilities that an end user might have for running a database, and I just described some of them, but they can also include like networking setup, high availability setup, backup setup. What you're doing with the cloud database is you are able to transition some of those responsibilities over to a cloud provider such as IBM Cloud to manage those things automatically automatically for you uh, at scale in production. So you can spend more time building solutions and building your application for your end users and less time either building your own automation for these tasks or hiring people that are experts in these technologies to build and run these systems. Uh, And you can go back to building value for your end users rather than managing databases. So what I'm hearing is the database as a service gives me, we'll say as a developer, the opportunity to pick a database that I need that matches kind of my use cases, deploy it automatically on a cloud and not have to really care and feed for the the tables, the backup, the new versions, et cetera. Is that kind of where we're going with this? Yeah, a, a bit. So effectively, what you're getting from these cloud providers is a point-and-click deployment of a production-grade database that you get a connection string and you're off and running. Uh, A lot of systems, you're still going to have to worry about tables, data layout, data optimization, and query performance, sort of bread-and-butter DBA-type activities. But a lot of the painstaking tasks that are important to a business around like business continuity and stability and resiliency are handled by the cloud provider uh, to ensure that your systems have more uptime. And... Transitioning a little bit to like what is the business value here, um, because at the end of the day, often IT needs to provide the business value, right, to make the decision to use something as a service in the public cloud. And in my opinion, it comes down to 
economics, elasticity, and agility. So from an economic point of view, databases as a service are often charged on an hourly basis. They you, you will either include the license for proprietary software or be open source and you won't be charged license uh, on that hourly basis. And you're transitioning capital expenditure to operational expenditure on, on the accounting and finance side. Uh, so that's important for business leaders. And also it's that you, know, you pay for what you use. You're paying by the drink. If you're using X amount of resources and you change the Y amount of resources over months or quarters, you're only going to be charged for, you know, at an hourly mark every time you scale, as opposed to in a previous model where you're just buying licensed software, you probably have to buy the amount of cores that you want to use for the whole years. And you're paying that one year, two year, three year outlay. Whereas with database as a service, license is often included if it's proprietary, like I said, and you're able to be charged hourly. Transitioning to elasticity, um, from a cloud provider point of view, these databases as a service and the underlying infrastructure of a cloud provider is virtually infinite. So you don't have to over-provision for anticipated scale. Your database system will scale with your business out as it grows. You're not spending more money or buying hardware ahead of time, 12 months ahead of time, to be ready for the Black Friday season. You're able to sort of scale up right before and scale down right after to optimize your costs. And lastly, the the really important one for me is agility. So we, we started this conversation off talking about why are there so many different database types? And, and Ben had a, a very good response to that on this sort of primary, but first auxiliary data stores. And organizations and IT departments are complex. So developers and teams want to use different databases across the business. With a cloud provider, we're hiring and maintaining a subject matter expert team to build and run these databases all over the world and, and operate them 24-7. We have the experts in all these various, uh, you know, 10, 15 different database technologies in-house at IBM to build and run these systems. Using database as a service, you don't have to go hire and manage that team of database experts to get the value of these sort of purpose-built databases and incorporate them into your application stack. So, you know, Redis is is fairly simple, but uh, something more complex like RabbitMQ or etcd or Cassandra, if you start to realize that you're hitting the outer edges of where you feel comfortable using the primary data stores and you feel like you really need to use these specialized auxiliary systems in a cloud provider, you can easily adopt them because it's point and click and we're going to give you an endpoint. It's going to look and feel um, the same as the you know previous databases you might have used from a cloud provider. It's going to be automatically integrated with logging and monitoring and audit logging. So it's really just about you know, adopting and understanding the new, new technology rather than trying to hire and productize a new technology internally. So it gives you a lot of flexibility in how you can deploy your application stack and how you can be nimble in the face of, of change from your, your business requirements and your end users. Speaking of ways to deploy your applications, you know, so we've kind of covered database on-prem. We've covered database as a service. A few episodes ago, I interviewed... Brianna Frank about distributed cloud. And IBM has an offering called IBM Cloud Satellite, which allows cloud services to be provisioned on-prem. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to explain distributed cloud first, then dive into satellite, and then databases enabled by satellite. So distributed cloud is a form factor of enabling geographically distributed but centrally managed public cloud services that can be operated and understood from the IBM cloud as an example, 
but placed anywhere that you need to put a workload. So from an IBM Cloud Satellite perspective, Satellite is the mechanism that IBM uses to achieve distributed cloud, which is that distribution geographically of public cloud services. The the as-a-service model basically being put where the end user wants it. Previously, uh, customers would have to come to a public cloud and be constrained by the locations that were available from that public cloud. In IBM parlance, it's called an IBM Cloud multi-zone region. It's a region of data centers that are three data centers for high availability that are networked to appear as one data center or fault tolerant to make sure your applications can stay up if you lose data center. So previously, customers were constrained uh, to having to put their workloads in those public cloud locations. So uh, what did this mean? This mean that customers that had made significant investments in on-premises infrastructure in the past were kind of left high and dry spend millions of dollars, you don't want to go spend millions of dollars again in the public cloud. You have an infrastructure that you bought and, and want to use. It also means that customers are faced with a tough choice when they work with different cloud providers because every cloud provider has their own logging and monitoring system, their own way of doing databases, their own ACL and security policies. The compliance postures are all different. And to boot, you have to manage these things from, from different consoles, so different APIs, different CLIs, different developer experiences. So uh, this left customers that were trying to pursue a multi-cloud strategy uh, a little bit frazzled in, in trying to do that across their, their business organizations. So what distributed cloud helps bridge here is it lets customers get the benefits of public cloud as a service offerings in their on-premises data center, for example. And it also lets them extend the benefits of in the satellite example of IBM public cloud services to other cloud service providers, such as Microsoft Azure, Amazon Web Services, or Google Cloud Platform. So now if I'm a user and I have maybe some regulatory constraints or things of that nature, or one reason or another to keep my stuff on-prem or continue to remain inside my data center, what this distributed cloud tends to do or can do is allow those services to be deployed into my premise if I need it there, other clouds, and this concept of the edge. Do you have examples of use cases, Josh, around distributed cloud and what people can do with it from a business perspective? Yeah, let me give uh, two concrete examples. And you also called out edge, which is another great use case for distributed cloud. So I'm going to circle back to that one after I give the concrete examples. The first one is business modernization on-premises. Let's say you have an organization that is uh, in a financial industry that fully has to stay on-prem for regulatory reasons, but developers have been increasingly demanding and requiring uh, a gamut of cloud services because of the IP, the advancements, the evolution that the public cloud is doing, whether it be for for big data, for databases, for data science. And they want these tools on-premises and they're, they're not delivered as software today. They're, they're public cloud proprietary services. Uh, what the distributed cloud model, uh, in this case, IBM Cloud Satellite, allows us to do for customers is bring them the modernized services, bring them the bleeding edge of tech and put that in their data centers. They don't have to be responsible for running it, being an expert in those technologies. It lets developers have the technologies they want while reducing the friction of of trying to run these things yourself. And it also makes it so that as our services evolve in the public cloud, these services in your own data center will evolve in parallel because it's an extension of our public cloud offerings. Uh, So what this allows our customers to do is is modernize their businesses in place. They're allowed to take the advantage of the evolution of the public cloud 
well using their existing inve- investment in on-premises data hardware uh, without breaking regulatory compliance requirements. The second use case is more around high availability. Again, in the banking industry, one thing I've seen with clients is in certain geographies, you need to be highly available for an application across two clouds if you're going to use the public cloud. So what satellite lets you do in this case is give you a single pane of glass for having your database deployments as highly available in multiple cloud regions. So instead of setting up a highly available database on one cloud provider and then going through the whole rigmarole of setting up another database on another cloud provider, and you're going to be using their managed database as a service offerings because you don't want to be dealing with backup and HA, you're going to have to learn all over again the the provisioning semantics, how it does high availability, what's your business continuity and disaster recovery plan uh, if you use multiple different cloud providers to achieve something like this. If you use a IBM Cloud Satellite, it's one high availability model. It's one single place to manage the databases. It's one integration for logging and monitoring to be that single pane of glass for how your systems are doing. Returning back to the edge deployment model for something like satellite and for distributed cloud, uh, distributed cloud enables a really new, interesting class of putting as a service offerings closer to end users. So when we talk about the edge, that can be a telco bay station in San Francisco. It can be a factory floor in the middle of the country. It can be an oil rig in Alaska. And there are certain class of use cases, whether it's around uh, machine learning or just lack of internet connectivity, uh, or at least deep and broad networks between places where you want to put data in a specific spot that isn't a public cloud data center, is not an on-premises data center, is a smaller form factor of compute storage. And the location doesn't matter, but the use cases that you, you see this in are whether something like uh, automotive, like in the car, for example, or on the factory floor, like I said. So what distributed cloud allows you to do is scale your database usage, uh, at least in this case, to edge locations seamlessly because it's the same technology we're using to deploy our services on-premises and other cloud providers. We're able to deploy uh, database services and other public cloud services into these edge locations, the, the factory floor, the car, the oil rig, uh, using the same underlying fabric, which is IBM Cloud Satellite, that enables distributed cloud. One of the big reasons I see clients coming to us for edge and distributed cloud is really around machine learning. So let's say you are on the factory floor and you're doing machine uh, learning, machine vision learning, rather, on items coming down the supply chain pipeline. And you want to be able to quickly react to potentially a, a malformed piece of hardware that's being spit out of the supply chain. Seconds matter, potentially, because then you have to disrupt maybe the whole supply chain if it gets too far down the path. And what customers might want to do is have the data be processed locally so the data isn't making round trips between the factory floor and the public cloud. Because physics, like data can only travel so fast. So when uh, milliseconds matter, the distributed cloud model is really helpful because it lets you put these services in your edge location and you still get all the benefits of the as-a-service model we previously talked about, the management of the services, the uptime of them, the resiliency. That story into itself is really powerful. Ben, when you talk to IT directors or teams that are contemplating moving towards database as a service, how do you guide them? 
what approaches have you seen be successful in the industry and what wisdom can you provide? Yeah, it's an interesting question. At EDB, our bread and butter is obviously in software business and we're supporting a lot of customers who are in on-prem traditional environments and a lot of customers who are also on a cloud journey already. Some significant chunk of the software that we sell is deployed on cloud infrastructure today, for example. Um, and everybody asks about databases as a service. I think, um, unsurprisingly, I mean, the segment is growing really rapidly. The thing that I try to impress upon folks is that it's really important to think about what you're really trying to get out of a database as a service. As Josh said earlier, and there's a lot of there's a lot of ways to talk about things like agility and flexibility and those sorts of ideas around databases as a service that are really um, really important. At the end of the day, you've really got a couple of different ways to think about it. From my perspective, you know, you're talking to somebody who's coming straight from on-prem onto the cloud. Think about management capabilities and automation capabilities. What does it really mean to your business to have self-service database systems? How important is that to your developers? How important is that to your business unit teams to actually be able to deliver databases in a self-service fashion? Similarly, kind of in parallel, how important is it for you to offload those responsibilities, not just in feature function type capabilities like offloading um, version upgrades or network configuration, but really being able to say that my security posture for my database is handled by this other organization. And that can be a really powerful benefit for a lot of organizations. But those two things don't necessarily have to be married. So from my perspective, thinking about things like distributed cloud um, and some newer, more creative uh, business and product models around database as a service, I think we can start to break things down in a more interesting way and solve a lot of you know, IT directors, enterprise architect type problems with something that isn't necessarily the IBM Cloud databases or Amazon RDS shaped box, right? When you start to put IBM Cloud databases in IBM Cloud Satellite, um, you look at things that some other vendors are doing um, in terms of really breaking down the division between a management box and a self-service box, you can get some really interesting results for those, uh, for those organizations. Great. Thank you. Josh, do you have anything to add to what Ben said? No, I think uh, Ben's advice is really powerful. And where I think the future is going, especially with distributed cloud, is... Um, today, it's, a, it's kind of zero or one, right? You either have your workload on-premises, you're running it yourself, or you've handed off your data to a public cloud provider who is running a lot of things for you, and you're now responsible for query optimization and data layout. Uh, but you're also relying on that cloud provider's SOC, type, SOC 2 Type 2 compliance, their HIPAA compliance, which is solid, well, and good. They, they do it for a bunch of offerings, and they do it year over year, and they're experts in it. But you are, you are handing over your data to a cloud provider. I think one of the things that cloud providers are doing is developing systems and technologies uh, around security and trust to help folks move from on-premises to public cloud and feel confident, whether it be through technical assurance or higher levels of compliance uh, that they can trust the cloud provider. And from a distributed cloud point of view, I think you're going to start to see folks trying to deliver technologies that mesh across on-premises edge and public cloud, such as IBM's auto SQL and auto capabilities uh, in order to sort of up-level the conversation around data and have one data fabric across where, wherever you need to be for your locations rather than making the conversation about 
where is my data, which cloud provider is, is it in. It's, it's the conversation is about data. It needs to be about data, not databases. And it needs to be around the insights that you're deriving from the data to help you business leaders. Yeah, I think I think that's really important. I think we will see and we should be getting more questions about data governance from folks in the industry. I would not be at all surprised to see data governance turn into a really hot topic over the next couple of years. And then, like you said, Josh, this sort of binary division between on-prem versus on the cloud starts to get really interesting because you've got data sets that are maybe hybrid. You've got data sets that are replicating from one place to another. Not only do you need to understand sort of the security posture of the runtime underneath that data, but you also need to understand where the data is going and who has access to the data. There's a lot of interesting challenges there that I think we're really just scratching the surface of, right? When you look at developers or IT practitioners, what guidance do you have for them, Ben, around the adoption of DBaaS? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I I may be a little bit idiosyncratic here, but I think databases as a service has generally been too focused on developers and gives developers too much of a feeling that they can do it all, right? That you read you read a couple bullets on a marketing website. And you get the impression that you, you, know, you make this API call, you click this button, and you're a database wizard. You don't need to talk to the DBAs. They, the, the service did everything for you. And that, this is just not true, right? You really have to understand what the responsibility model of this database as a service you're buying is. Um, so my advice to most developers is to, like, don't think that you can give up the responsibility for understanding the database. Coming as somebody who's involved in the Postgres community, and has worked in public cloud environments and kind of bridging those two groups. Um, what I've found is that the people, your average developer building cloud native applications just has no idea how powerful the database is. Has no idea how what they can do with the database. And conversely, the people building the database, like the Postgres core team, doesn't know how little your average developer knows. Right, and there's a there's sort of some education that needs to happen in both ways there. And with EDB, I'm working on that in the context of EDB and trying to push us in a, sort of a, a more sophisticated, more rigorous understanding on both sides of what the requirements are and what the opportunities are. So my advice to developers would be to learn about the database and really understand what problems it can solve, even though you're offloading a bunch of this undifferentiated heavy lifting, like how do I run a database upgrade to a cloud vendor? Because it's, that's a good idea, right? If you don't know what you're doing, you, you shouldn't be in that business, right? Josh, Ben kind of talked a little bit about his perspective on the futures of databases. What do you see happening with databases in the five to 10 year timeframe? That's a good question, Dan. I've been really impressed with the work coming out of Carnegie Mellon and Andy Pablo's group around self-driving databases. You might have uh, heard it mentioned as uh, autonomous databases. Andy and his team of postdocs and his undergrad students, which is awesome, have been working on a database called NoisePage. And what NoisePage is, is trying to build a database from the ground up to really be self-driving. We talk about self-driving. Uh, imagine the Tesla going down the road and being able to switch lanes, speed up, slow down. It's constantly learning and using machine vision to identify objects in the road and make changes. So where I think databases are going in the next five, 10 years is really around infusing AI into all parts of the database. And I think I agree with, with Andy that 
to do that really successfully, you need to build a new database because a lot of database systems today, when you change things in them, you tweak configurations, they require restarts of the database. So you can't tune the system online to be more performant. And also with these systems, you need to make sure that the changes that you are making in the database, whether it's in the query optimizer or configuration, are explainable and transparent and can be tracked. You don't want to have a database system suddenly change its behavior overnight because some ML model told it to, and you not be able to explain why that ML model made that change. And now your system is running, instead of 10x faster, it's running 10x slower. They spun out a startup called OtterTune, which is the first crack at that. It's actually ML-driven database configuration tuning. And they're also, from an academic point of view, working on building a ground-up AI-driven database called NoisePage. So I think we're going to see a lot of advancements in the next five to 10 years specifically around that topic. Okay. Now, that's enlightening, and we can add some of those papers and information to the show notes so people can learn more. Um, so... I've got a question. Josh, when we talk about these databases and databases on satellite, et cetera, where can teams go to learn more? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple paths for you to learn more about IBM Cloud Satellite and IBM Cloud Databases. So you can search for IBM Cloud Satellite and IBM Cloud Databases on Google, and they'll bring you to an, an IBM uh, webpage that has all sorts of customer stories, use cases, examples. There will also be webinars available to you from our technical leadership and our product leadership uh, to talk about architectural best practices, getting deeper and, and tighter on the use cases and like actual you know, market evidence and implementation there. So you can Google for IBM Cloud Satellite or IBM Cloud Databases. And you can also hit the show notes for a bunch of resources to learn more about our products. Yep, you're right. There's going to be a webinar series that will be also be on demand for those listeners who are listening to this like eight months from now. Um, hey, Ben, where do people go to learn more about EnterpriseDB? Yeah, um, EnterpriseDB.com is the homepage. Um, we just put on a conference a month ago or so um, called Postgres Vision. It's run by EnterpriseDB, a lot of great Postgres talks there. And then we've got some exciting product announcements coming up over the next couple of quarters. So Look for those on enterprisedb.com. Great. Looking forward to learning more and seeing what the team is going to produce, both from the enterprise DB side and the IBM cloud side. I want to be cognizant of our listeners' time, and I think this is a great opportunity for us to wrap up the show. Ben, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to join us. And Josh, same to you. Thanks again, everybody. We'll see you next time on the IBM Cloud Podcast. Did you know that Roland Barcy is the world's greatest Red Sox fan? <laughs>